Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, happy holidays. Happy it's holidays, almost, everybody. Well, it was Hanukkah. It's almost Christmas. It's almost Kwanzaa. It is one week from Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So we're probably going to talk about a really happy holiday subject, right? Families, mm-hmm. uh, classic stories, okay, uh, baked goods, maybe the history of cookies. No, instead we are going to be talking about the military regime of Brazil. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought we talked about. <laughs> yep. Uh, this was a period of about 20 years in uh, 20th century Brazil. That I think has a lot to say about uh, the 20th century itself, and whose effects are still reverberating today. Let's talk about this cheery holiday subject. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, to talk about it, we have to talk about what came before, and that is the presidency of uh, Zhao Goulart. Okay. Uh, I would like to have one big blanket apology to all of the... uh, uh, Brazilian Portuguese speakers listening. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going to do bad, aren't you? I'm going to do so bad. I'm going to try my best. But uh, Zhao Goulart, uh, better known by his nickname Django. Django. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Was the last president before the uh, uh, military uh, regime. His... Political career started when he was elected uh, to the state assembly and then the chamber of deputies. That's like the the uh, lower house of the national uh, legislature in uh. Brazil. Uh, and he rose to national prominence when he was appointed minister of labor by Vargas, who was uh, then president, earlier dictator of Brazil. Mm-hmm. He got deposed and then ran and won. In the face of, of right-wing factions uh, trying to organize another coup, there are a lot of coups in the history of Brazil. Love those coups. Goulart regulated the lending industry and doubled the minimum wage before okay. stepping down. Six months later, uh, when Varga committed suicide, he gave Django his suicide note. Ew. He was the guy he trusted with this sealed envelope, like, when I die, open this. Uh, and then when he opened it, he's like, oh, that that's why these were so close together, these events. So, I was going to say that was would be very odd if, like, he knew. Yeah. Like, dude, I'm going to kill myself. Here's my note. Mm-hmm. That's just awkward. Yeah, how do you say goodbye in that conversation? <laughs> See you tomorrow. Actually, no, I won't. No. You have to lie, have a lot of faith in someone, though, to, like, have them be the person <laughs> you trust. A very, very trusted person. Yeah. So then Brazilian politics had this huge shift. It was the first time uh, in a long, long time that Vargas hadn't been in the picture, right? Vargas founded uh, a lot of political parties. Two were the the PTB and the PSB, the the Labor Party and the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, They decided to, to come together and have a shared ticket and nominate uh, Django as a vice president. And they won. So he's oh. vice president now. Okay. In the 1960 election, they tried the same thing, and Django did win the vice presidency, but their shared presidential candidate did not win. Yeah. In Brazil, they were elected separately instead yeah. of as a unified thing. The president that won was Jano Quadros. Okay. Quadros was, was this populist who ran on a platform of just getting rid of all the old names, clearing house. He, he was the kind of guy that campaigned carrying a broom. He's that oh, guy. Oh, the brother where art thou guy. You know, he turned out to be a KKK member. I feel like that's a bad omen. Like <laughs> Just because of your favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, carrying a broom is not a good idea. This is why we don't own a broom. <laughs> we have a Swiffer. Swiffers have never hurt anybody. They just scare dogs sometimes. Yeah. Sorry, Mo. Especially those wet ones that squirt. Oh, God. She would have a heart attack. (laughs) Or she'd try to lick it. So as President Quadros, uh, he he cut government spending, got a whole lot of new loans from the IMF, and steered toward neutrality in the Cold War. Like, he he would uh, visit Cuba and give Che Guevara a, a, a medal 
while also decrying, you know, uh, uh, Soviet expansionism in other areas of the world. Mm-hmm. He was a guy that tried to be everything to everybody. Like, uh, this is the 1960s. Uh, there's a lot of decolonialization in Africa. And he's like, yeah, good for you, newly independent African nations. Have some aid. Have our support. He was also a supporter of the uh, uh, apartheid South African government. You know, just trying to play the field. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. Internally, his attacks on the bureaucracy, trying to clear them out and also uh, uh, bypassing them by uh, giving a lot of presidential decrees. All of these things left him without a lot of friends. Yeah. (laughs) The the government didn't like him very much. The military didn't like him very much. When you try to make friends with every faction, you're also making enemies of every faction. Yeah, you, they don't really like it if you don't side with them. But he had a plan, you see. In August 1861, he resigned. Uh-huh. Thinking that, well, my my uh, vice president is this uh, uh, labor-supporting weirdo that the military is not going to want, and uh, the centrists and the right wing aren't going to want, and hey, I won a popular election by a lot. Somebody is going to stand up and sweep me back into office with, uh, I'm just going to wait and see who my friends are, and I'll I'll have the support and this mandate. And it did not happen. He resigned, and that was it. They're like, okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Like I said, João Goulart was accidentally president of Brazil. Yeah. Now, instead of uh, bringing Quadros back in, like was his plan, instead the the powers that be just limited the powers of the presidency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, sure, uh, uh, this Django guy, he gets to be president, but we're going to create a prime minister and we'll give him the power that we're afraid of Gular having. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, part of that legally was that there would be a, a referendum for people to vote on how much they liked that system. Yeah. And the people overwhelmingly rejected it in 1963, oh. restoring uh, uh, the presidency in both title and uh, powers and privileges to Goulart. Mm-hmm. So in his spoiler here, one year of actual presidency, uh-huh. <laughs> he extended the vote to the illiterate, increased spending on education, uh, seized unused land from, from uh, landowners and redistributed it. And he required profits made in Brazil to be invested in Brazil mm-hmm. rather than uh, just siphoned out of the country by multinational uh, uh, corporations and investors. So, so they had a law that was actually like, if you can't read, you can't vote? Not, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> in March 1964, there was a, a strike in the Navy. 2,000 sailors went on strike. And so uh, the the not striking Navy sent some Marines in to break the strike, who instead joined it. Ah. Uh, you know, that is a trend, I feel like, that happens a lot in history. Yeah. We're like, hey, we're going to send these people in. And then they're like, no, we're just going to join. So Django uh, listened to their demands, instituted some military reforms, fired the minister of the Navy, and... Uh, after the, the strike was over, uh, the, the organizers were arrested and uh, President Goulart pardoned them all. Just like, no, no, come on. They, they won. They're mm-hmm. fine. Leave yeah. them alone. In public speeches, he, he laid out his upcoming uh, agenda. So he promised rent control, a wealth tax, and nationalization of the oil industry. So here we are in in the context of Cold War Latin America. Mm -hmm. And though that all sounds like the first steps to to a socialist dictatorship, Uh at least it does to people who have a vested interest in saying it sounds like the first steps to a socialist dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1961, as soon as Goulart was sworn in as president, the IPES, the Institute of Social Studies and Research – was founded. Uh-huh. If you're confused by the acronym, the acronym is based on the the Portuguese name. Oh. Yes, that's why there's different letters. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, they're just getting creative and they don't want anyone to know their secret code. Well, it was kind of a secret thing. They, they were a, a think tank 
founded to organize and support right-wing movements and uh, ultimately remove Goulart from office. Mm -hmm. Financed by the United States under President Kennedy. Of course. uh, With support organized through American ambassador Lincoln Gordon. Mm -hmm. So their activities were things like they they would make up instructional pamphlets and and, uh, films that they'd screen and, and distribute papers and do talks about the dangers of communism. And uh, a lot of focus on uh, its, its destruction of the family and traditional values. They, they were reaching out a lot through uh, the church and through uh, women's groups and social groups and, you know, f- families. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also sought a lot of foreign companies to invest in Brazil. Okay. Because the, the best way to stave off international communism is international capitalism. Makes yeah, sense? Yeah. Sure. In 1963, the Kennedy administration began to search for paramilitary forces capable of overthrowing the Goulart government. Because, you know, the Bay of Pigs went so well. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's a great thing to base stuff off of. I mean, earlier in the year, there was a CIA-backed coup in Latin America overthrowing another democratically elected government. Mm Mm-hmm. So on the 8th of March, 1963, a CIA memo was filed about the status of coup plans among military leaders. Uh-huh. Like, Goulart has barely gotten his, his presidential powers from that uh, uh, referendum, and the coup plans are already being laid out. Yes. Because, again, there's a lot of coups in Brazil. Yes. Very regular occurrence. At that stage, the head conspirator was Marshal Odilio Dennis. Denise. And that memo emphasized the the military's view of itself as the guardians of the Constitution. They step in whenever the government uh, oversteps its bounds and say, "Uh uh-uh, you're done. Somebody else's turn. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. And so because of that ideology, because of that self-perception as guardians of the uh, 1945 Constitution – uh, that they would not act until Django does something to seize greater power. Guardians of the Constitution sounds like a PBS kids show mm-hmm. idea. It, it sounds like a, a team of secret agents that should be trying to hunt down Nicolas Cage for revenge. So yes, the, the coup conspirators plan was just wait for uh, the president to do something to provoke a response so that we will have the moral high ground, the, the, the people will support us in the streets, and because that's our job. We're the good guys. Uh-huh. Yeah. On March 19th, 1964, the March of the Family with God for Liberty began. Wait, can you say that again? <laughs> the March of the Family with God for Liberty. Okay. That's the name of the march. That – I feel like they – they had too many ideas, <laughs> and uh, they had a lot of tie votes, and were like, well, we'll just like, combine it all. It's fine. This was a demonstration of three to 500,000 people organized by the Women's Campaign for Democracy, an organization of conservative Catholic women. With a name like the March of the Family with God for Liberty, I would think conservative Catholics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this was a group created and founded by IPES. Mm-hmm. One of their tactics was to create a whole lot of groups with a whole lot of names for these groups to present the anti-Gular movement as this broad base across demographics, uh-huh. across classes, across ethnicities, uh, uh, and you know cultural backgrounds. Now, the, the relevant CIA documents from, from this time are still classified, mm-hmm. but Unclassified correspondence does acknowledge U.S. intelligence involvement in support and organization of street rallies, bringing together churches and businesses and, and other interests to the anti-Gular umbrella. Mm-hmm. So it is more than reasonable to think that this uh, mass demonstration did have CIA involvement and backing. Mm-hmm. That was the 19th. On the 27th, Ambassador Gordon sent a cable back to Washington accusing Goulart of working with the Brazilian Communist Party and urging the CIA to prepare to intervene and the U.S. to provide ships full of fuel and ammunition for an impending coup. Oh, boy. On the 30th of March, a U.S. military attaché sent his own cable back, saying that the coup was coming soon. The conspirators wanted to do it within the next week, though they had not yet set a firm date. 
<laughs> and like everyone knew there was a coup coming. Gular knew yeah. there was a coup coming and his friends and they were trying to de- prepare defenses against I, it. I mean, is it? Of course they knew. There's it was coups. Always, always a coup coming. Yeah. Yes. It, yes. They're in a constant state of preparing for a coup. It's just a matter of when. And when was the next day on the 31st. Uh-huh. General Olimpio Morao Filho marched his troops toward Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. uh, where Goulart was staying. The, the former capital, Br- Brasilia, had been built by now and, and invested as the capital, but uh, Rio was still where uh, Goulart was at mm-hmm. the time. None of the other conspirators knew that today was the day. Yeah. <laughs> One, General Cruel, uh, just refused to join and said, You're, this is the wrong time. There, there was no provoking event. You're, you're wrong. I'm sitting this one out. Another uh, uh, general tried to stop him twice. Oh. Uh, just like, hey, hey, no, please, no, no, no. Even without support, Philho's uh, troops continued ahead uh, through skirmishes and through barricades. At 10 p.m., General Cruel, the, the one who uh, just refused to take part, uh, he, he called up the president. The two of them were friends. Cruel was a godfather to Django's children. Uh, they were close. Yeah. Uh, and so he had a list of demands uh, that would keep him from adding his troops to the coup. I'm, I'm pulling for you, buddy. This is what you've got to do to keep me on your side. <laughs> they were to fire the minister of justice and his chief of staff and to outlaw the workers' general command. that This was an organization, an advocacy group, a, a huge one, for labor rights and for workers. Okay. Uh, Goulart's response was, quote, General, I don't abandon my friends. I would rather stick with my grassroots. You should stick to your convictions. Put your troops out on the street and betray me publicly. Goodness. The guts. The gall. Yeah. This is when I decided that, uh, forget objectivity, this is my kind of guy. <laughs> I love him. Django's my boy. That's how you talk. If that's how you talk to somebody with thousands of armed people waiting for an order to march you out of your home, yeah, you're my dude. <laughs> so that night, Gular uh, left his home uh, <laughs> and, and flew to Brasilia. And uh, Cruel's troops went on the march, mm-hmm. not having re- received his concessions, his demands. When Goulart's plane landed, he found that uh, the president of the Senate was already drumming up support within Congress for the coup, mm-hmm. and that uh, the, the generals that he that were loyal to him were not loyal enough to give you know the order to fire on the other advancing troops, like. Nobody was such a believer in the the Gular cause or had any hope of winning enough to spark a civil war. Yeah. Uh they they were all like, you know, the 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 curtain has closed on you, dude. We like you, but you're done. Mm-hmm. So uh Django and his family fled to Uruguay, uh where he owned some land. He was he owned a lot of land. <laughs> As soon as he took off, in fact, even before he left the country, the office of the presidency was declared vacant, which is technically against the Constitution. Uh, uh, and over those that. People who want to protect the Constitution. Over that two day coup, seven people died. Uh, there were two small skirmishes and one uh, student protest that troops opened fire on. Okay. Meanwhile, back in the United States, uh, we were planning for a very different situation. U.S. intelligence predicted that divided loyalties would lead to a full civil war. Oh. That they would risk it, that they would escalate. Uh, And so the Johnson administration authorized a full naval fleet to be dispatched in support of the anti-Gular forces. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, seven warships sailed out, uh, positioned themselves outside Rio de Janeiro in, in case they were needed. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in a warehouse in New Jersey, there were 110 tons of ammunition and tear gas just waiting for the order for 10 cargo planes to lift and carry them. Uh-huh. Uh, they would be in Brazil in a day. Goodness. Not that never got that call. Yeah. Not needed. Well, it's just one of those things you're like, how many of those cargo planes are just like sitting around waiting for shit to happen like that? 
And while we contemplate that, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hello. So this is an episode about Brazil's military regime, and we haven't even talked about it yet. No. We talked about what it replaced and and how it launched. So let's talk about it for a while, why don't we? Okay. So it officially began in the days following uh, that two-day coup in April of 1964. Mm -hmm. The U.S. immediately recognized the legitimacy of the new government and helped prop it up. And the the new president uh, was... Castello Branco, a former chief of staff of the army. Uh, he was one of the conspirators. He was the one who uh, tried to get in Filho's way in, in the morning of the 31st. So he would turn back and they would wait for a more opportune moment. <clears throat> it didn't work and he wound up president anyway. So good for Branco. Uh, so he used this new U.S. support to uh, get a bunch of investment from the World Bank and the IMF and private American companies, enough so that within two years, foreign companies controlled half of Brazil's industry. That's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And he, he promoted uh, the regime as a democratic force protecting Latin America from communist encroachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact that uh, it replaced a democratically elected government does not matter because it replaced what was surely to be a, a communist totalitarian state, mm-hmm. uh, even though nobody voted for Bronco. Yeah. Right. Uh, he was sworn in after the passing of the first institutional act. The, these were acts of the government that redefined how government worked throughout the uh, uh military regime there's about there's a lot of them we're going to talk about all the important ones Mm -hmm. yeah but the first institutional act uh gave the president authority to remove elected officials from office dismiss civil servants and revoke for 10 years the political rights of those found guilty of subversion or misuse of public funds great great way to you know purge your enemies yeah yeah uh now, Bronco committed himself to being a reformer. Uh, that's what he always said, at least. Uh, and he, he believed in restoring civilian control once his work was done. Uh, he's like, hey, the military gave me this job, but I promise that I'm going to give it to someone who is elected. I'm only going to be president until the end of Goulart's uh, term. Mm-hmm. Then, opposition candidates won uh, some major governorships in 1965. Wow. So the hardline branch of the military demanded that he annul the elections entirely, and when he refused, they threatened to do a coup. Yeah, because, you know, we like coups. Uh, In exchange for for present... For preventing that, he, he got them to back down from the coup by adopting a more hardline stance on his own, rather than, you know, have tanks in the streets to put someone in his place to do the same. So that brings us to the second institutional act, which abolished all existing political parties mm-hmm. and extended his term to 1967. Uh-huh. So now there there are only two parties. There is, um, there is ARENA, which uh, is the... Uh, acronym of the uh, pro-military regime party. Mm -hmm. And then there is a designated opposition party. Okay. So everyone else. Basically. If you're not with us, you're against us. You're them. There are, of course, illegal uh, uh, political parties. Oh, yeah. The uh, Communist Party of Brazil never went away. It was just very illegal. Well, yeah, just because you say they no longer exist doesn't mean they're not there. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a life lesson there for you, world. (laughs) So some other things that Bronco did during his, or should I say Goulart's, extended uh, term. He passed a repressive press law that's remained on the books until 2009, paving the way for the regime's uh, censorship activities. The third institutional act uh, redefined how elections work, uh, favoring the establishment party, basically removing direct elections and replacing them with indirect elections with uh, an electoral college. Mm-hmm. They, they would 
know who to elect. Mm -hmm. The fourth institutional act called for a new constitution to replace the one from 1945, the one that the coup's original planners prided themselves uh, on defending and upholding. Yeah, the whole something something god something liberty constitution blah 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 something like that it was a very long name well that was just a bunch of uh uh, catholic women who wanted to protect their family against the godless communists yeah five hundred thousand of them in fact yeah you know uh after his term ended uh he was killed in a mid-air plane crash oh like within a few weeks it was very strange that is very strange Are there conspiracy theories about this? Not that I know of, but then there's a conspiracy theory about everything in there. Pretty much. So Bronco uh, helped select his successor, uh, Arturo de Costa e Silva, who was Minister of War under Bronco. Uh, He was a hardliner from the start. He he needed no convincing. He needed no threats or massaging in order to to pursue that wing's uh, uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bronco promised to uh, uh, give over the presidency to someone elected by the people. He instead gave it to someone who was unanimously elected uh, because of his selection in the National Assembly. Mm-hmm. Early in Costa A. Silva's uh, uh, administration, a police officer shot a student demonstrating against high food prices at point-blank range. Oh. The student's friends carried his body into the legislature for identification and autopsy rather than let him be taken by police and disappear. Yeah. His death sparked this greater student movement against the military government, and police chased and beat the people who attended his funeral. Oh. Uh, One congressman said uh, that young ladies should protest the government by refusing to dance with military cadets. Uh, This was sort of the last straw for Costa e Silva in, in the midst of, of this uproar. Uh, and he asked the National Congress to prosecute that congressman. They refused. Yeah. And so... that That's the last straw, though, is like, my boys can't get any. I'm going to be very upset about this. More, more charitably, the last straw was that, what's the point of being president if the legislature doesn't do what you say? Yeah, okay. And so he passed the Fifth Institutional Act, the most repressive of them all. Uh, the, the center of it is that the president could force the Congress into a recess, and in event of a recess, he would get all legislative powers. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That included the power to amend the Constitution, the one they just rewrote. Yeah. The Fifth Institutional Act gave the power to censor the press or any mass media that subverted political or moral values. Oh, anytime there's moral values involved, it's bad. Uh, Declared (laughs) illegal any political meeting unauthorized by the police. Mm -hmm. And included the ability to fire any any public servant, including judges and elected officials. Huh. So yes, there there is a state-designated, completely legal opposition party, but the president can just fire anyone elected to Congress he doesn't like. Yeah. And if he doesn't like all of Congress, he can send them all home and just be Congress. Himself. Himself. Yeah. Also, judicial review was removed from presidential decrees. Then again, what are they reviewing against? The Constitution? The president can just rewrite that if he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Job doesn't need to be done. It's really redundant when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Costa A. Silva died of a stroke just over two years into his term. You know, maybe if he calmed down a little, <laughs> he would have been okay. He is remembered for laying the groundwork of the brutal suppression that followed because he did not really have the time to enact it himself. No. So our next president we're going to talk about is Emilio uh, Garasatsu Medici. He had previously been head of the secret police. Oh, oh, good. That's always a good thing to learn. So with that, uh, shall we say, professional interest, he went even harder against dissidents. So critics of the new regime just disappeared. Yeah, what uh, you do. The, the thing about regimes with secret police is they aren't that secret. No. Everybody knows what building it is, and they keep their heads down, and they don't do anything about it because they don't want to be on the inside. Yeah. Because down in that basement, everybody knows 
everybody hears what happens. And uh, it's hard not to believe when all these stories, all these rumors match up. The, the torturers were uh, trained by American and British consultants. Of course they were. Uh, trained in methods that included rape and castration. Mm-hmm. And plenty were just plain killed. It wasn't just torture. Uh, with their deaths staged as accidents, uh, bodies could be dismembered and, and just scattered in the wilderness, never to be found. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that's the hope. Or found, you know. How are you going to identify them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, private companies also helped the secret police. Like, management would report any suspicious activity, any any workers who were uh, trying to organize the workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Volkswagen do Brazil, the Brazilian branch of Volkswagen, was mm-hmm. particularly notorious for that. Oh. So when I say the secret police, there are a lot of groups performing these actions in Brazil throughout the regime. A notable one was the SNI, sort of a, a state intelligence uh, body. Uh, it operated independently. The head of the SNI had a seat in the cabinet. It was created to, to also coordinate the military inter- intelligence services, although those stayed pretty autonomous even so. Mm-hmm. The most infamous was uh, army intelligence, the CIE, which, like I said, is supposed to be managed by SNI, but it was pretty much rogue. Mm-hmm. And so the CIE would bomb theaters, they kidnapped people, they were just waging an, an underground guerrilla war in the cities against leftist groups and dissidents. Uh-huh. So Medici gets some good press, actually. He was president during the Brazilian miracle. This is four or five consecutive years of 10% annual growth. That is incredible. Uh-huh. That it, That is, I mean, an economic miracle. The name is not wrong. Yeah. Of course, during this miracle, wages were stagnant. The, the minimum wage had half the buying power it did before the coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, one third of Brazilians were making that minimum wage. Yeah. So, so this is growth for the wealthy and, and benefiting the middle class, but so much of Brazil is just left behind. And yeah. hopefully trying to get some work building the infrastructure projects that uh, the government instituted. Highways, dams, a, a, a lot of uh, beneficial projects, but it's not helping a lot of folks get by all the same. Yeah. And by now, nearly all the largest private companies in Brazil were in foreign hands and exporting uh, their share of those profits to the U.S., West Germany, Japan. Yeah. Those are the big three, but plenty of others besides. Uh, Medici visited President Nixon in 1971. And, of course, Nixon famously had a, a tape record of all of his conversations. Oh, yeah. So we know that they chatted about ways to get rid of uh, Salvador Allende in Chile. Mm-hmm. And were really interested in setting up communication between uh, the Medici administration and Henry Kissinger outside diplomatic channels, where they don't keep records or uh, audio tape of uh, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you shouldn't talk about that on an audio tape. <laughs> it did come back to bite Nixon. Like, come on. <laughs> we know yeah, how that learned story your ends. lesson. So after Medici served out his term, Ernesto uh, Geisel was the next president selected by the military regime. Mm-hmm. He was the first not to be elected unanimously by the National Congress. The, the opposition party actually nominated someone else. Oh. Yeah. I, he was overwhelmingly elected, but not unanimous. Uh, Geisel was from the, the Bronco side, right? He, he was moderate, and he tried to move the country and succeeded uh, toward democratization. Mm-hmm. including ending Institutional Act 5. Okay. Uh, he, he welcomed back exiled citizens, and he set aside the presidential emergency powers. Mm-hmm. Even so, he was still the head of a repressive military regime. Yes. Who personally, personally authorized over 100 executions of subversives. Yeah. And a few years before dismissing uh, IA-5, that was toward the end of his term, in the beginning of his term, he used it to make this uh, uh, governor's election that went a bit too far toward the uh, uh, opposition. 
before they were sworn in, he, he changed the rules so that that was now an indirect election so that they were just sending electors to an electoral college rather than directly electing their governors. Mm-hmm. So that Arena still kept those governorships. Yeah. While he was president, the oil crisis struck Brazil and everywhere else in 1973, ending the Brazilian miracle. Uh, in order to lessen the, the shock to the country, he opened Brazil up to foreign oil speculation mm-hmm. and ran up a massive debt. By either the end of his presidency or the next, Brazil had the largest international debt of any country. Oh, boy. Uh, Geisel's administration also uh, began Operation Condor. Have you heard of Operation Condor, dear? I've heard that name. Uh, It's a collaboration between the intelligence services of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay, and uh, later, shortly after its founding, Brazil, Mm -hmm. in order to stop leftist subversives beginning in 1975. Just all these people sharing resources, sharing information in order to crack down on those darn communists and socialists in our midst. Yeah. This is tied in intimately with Argentina's dirty war and uh, Pinochet's death squads and death flights. Hmm. The death flights are just a really efficient story of uh, human carnage. Uh, they, they would take the people that needed to die. On a plane? Uh, on a plane or a helicopter, and just kick them out. Okay. Over, over wilderness with no one around for miles and miles and miles, or just the ocean. I mean, that gets right to the point of what you want to do without wasting resources, I guess. It It's like the guillotine. Necessity is the mother of invention. They killed so many people, they needed to come up with a better way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So during Operation Condor, there's an estimated 500 to 1,000 people killed or disappeared by Brazil. Again, talking about Argentina's uh, uh, dirty war, their estimate is between seven and 30,000. That's, that's a lot. To say that 500 to 1,000 is one of the, the less monstrous counts in, in this bit of international cooperation is, is a trip. Mm-hmm. So in 1978, Uruguayan military officers kidnapped uh, some activists from their country and their two small children and kidnapped them to Brazil. Mm -hmm. This pair of Brazilian journalists followed a tip about that to the house where they were held. They they knocked on the door and were arrested themselves uh, until their identities checked out and they were released. Mm -hmm. So they published the story. And it got international attention, the, this huge outrage of, like, what, what is happening to these dissidents being taken across national borders. Uh, that's not, that's against the rules. And so all this attention kept those two activists and their kids alive. Mm-hmm. They served sentences in prison rather than being lost somewhere. Wink, wink. Who is this headless, armless corpse in the jungle? Yeah. A surviving uh, Uruguayan activist in 1993 uh, said to the Brazilian press, part of like a 15-year retrospective on, on these internationally known events, right? Mm-hmm. That about 180 Uruguayans were kidnapped abroad, but the only survivors were that family. Goodness. In 1976, uh, our, our old friend Django, uh, former President Goulart, died in Argentina in his exile. The official cause of death was a heart attack. Uh, he was, Let me guess, it wasn't. We don't know, because he was never uh, autopsied. There was no investigation into the cause of death. He, his family, and his properties, we do know, were being monitored by Uruguayan agents throughout his exile uh, under the auspices of uh, Operation Condor. Newly released documents show plans and orders to have him eliminated. And all of this evidence that we have currently suggests he was assassinated as part of Operation Condor. Mm-hmm. Without, you know, blood tests that were never taken, without exhuming the body and hoping there was some method of poison that would stay for 40 years. Yeah. Like, we're, we're never going to know for sure. But the balance of evidence would suggest that uh, Operation Condor led to the assassination of Gular. 
Now, Operation Condor was given financial, organizational, and technical support by the CIA and Henry Kissinger. Of course. Uh, They even carried out operations in the U.S., not Brazil specifically, but Operation Condor as a whole. Like uh, Pinochet's assassination of Ambassador Orlando Letelier with a car bomb in Washington, D.C. This ambassador was uh, Allende's ambassador to America and and loyal to that regime and was sort of living in an exile in Washington, D.C., teaching at like a school for public policy. Mm Mm-hmm. Pinochet didn't want to have that. He wanted him dead. Yeah. So uh, the CIA knew this plan was coming, did nothing to prevent it, and in fact helped uh, cover up Pinochet's involvement until all these documents were later uh, declassified. Uh, Director of the CIA during that adventure was George H.W. Bush. Okay. So meanwhile, back back within the borders of Brazil... After Geisel's term, his plan for a gradual return to democracy continued. His successor, João Figueiredo, uh, passed an amnesty law in order to get this along. The, the amnesty law declared that nobody could be tried for political crimes committed for or against the military regime between the years of 1961 and 1978. So all you exiles that have you know, warrants for your arrest for, for plotting against the government— you're safe. You're fine. Also, I, the second president uh, uh, who got the job after being head of the secret police, am also fine. Yeah. yeah. We're all fine here. We're all square. We're all good. They're not going to come after you. You're not going to come after me. It's, it's a healthy compromise. Mm-hmm. It also allowed the creation of new political parties. Arena was disbanded. New political parties rose up in its place that had the same agenda or different agendas. Like, not everyone was coerced into supporting this regime. Some people believed in it. A lot of people believed in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at all of the people who, who profited so much off the uh, Brazilian miracle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that brings us to 1985, when Tancredo Neves was the first civilian elected president since the dawn of military rule. He never actually served as president because he died from a tumor between being... Oh, my God. Between his election and his uh, swearing in. Did Brazil really just have, like, a curse put on them or something? (laughs) Like, Uh, becoming president just means you're going to die shortly. (laughs) So the first uh, civilian president to serve uh, was the man elected as vice president in that election, Jose Sarney. Uh, Sarney's successor, Fernando Color de Melo, is the first directly elected president since Quadros. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was in the early 90s. Okay. So why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? Tell, tell, tell us. Put this into pers- pers- perspective. I decided uh, to do this a few weeks back, last month. After Brazil's most recent elections. Which is really bad, right? We are two weeks from the inauguration of Jair Bolsonaro to the presidency of Brazil. Yeah. On January 1st. He's really bad. That's what I've heard. You're right. Okay. Tell, tell me why he's bad. During the coup, he was nine years old. He graduated from the military academy as the democratization process was beginning to, to take shape. Mm-hmm. And in in his rhetoric, uh, in his beliefs, he lionizes the military regime as a golden age of prosperity and order. Oh, God. Overall order. Uh, he believes that torture is legitimate. When asked about the regime, he says, quote, The error of the dictatorship was that it tortured, but did not kill. Oh, really? It that- did not. Apparently he didn't see the numbers. <laughs> Part of the story of Bolsonaro taking power was is a, a wide, deep, and long, just massive uh, uh, corruption investigation and scandal just gutting the Brazilian federal and, and state governments, mm-hmm. right? Part of that was the uh, uh, 2016 uh, uh, impeachment process of then-President Dilma Rousseff. He voted uh, pro-impeachment. And he dedicated his vote to the military officer that tortured her back when she was a dissident during the military regime. (sighs) 
Now, he, he's not just a, a fan of the home team. He, he's also a supporter of other South American dictators, saying that Pinochet didn't kill enough people. A common estimate of how many Chileans uh, died under Pinochet's order is around 3,000. Not enough. Just to say what the baseline there is for not enough. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, uh, Bolsonaro was this weirdo, basically, that, that people would call up for TV and radio interviews just to poke him and see what wild, ridiculous thing he would say. Mm-hmm. And one of those interviews in the 90s was that uh, he said that he would use the presidency, if he ever got it, to disband the National Congress and have a coup of his own. Oh, boy. In the 2018 uh, uh, campaign, he said that uh, he's grown since then and changed his mind and that any uh, legitimate ruler of Brazil should be directly elected by the people. But that's that's, that's because he's worried people are going to do a coup against him. <laughs> Motherfuckers are just worried. So in addition to the the violent, like literally violent homophobia and transphobia, the racism, the uh, increased austerity and frankly fascism of Jair Bolsonaro, these are the, the elements of the military regime that that are being carried forward into the next presidency of Brazil. <sighs> Well, with that, we're going to take another quick break. And we got so many letters oh my this God. time. So many. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Like I said, we have a big old pile of mail to get through. You guys got busy over the past, like, three days especially. All that holiday break. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so our first letter comes from Joe. Joe being the one who was the mystery friend that suggested history, honeys. To Haley. To Haley, uh, last episode. Joe is answering the favorite dictator prompt. With- Military dictator. Thank you. Okay. Military dictator. <laughs> yes. Some people were like, oh man, you specifically asked for that. That's hard. <laughs> And Joe goes with Joseph Stalin, mostly because he was hilariously paranoid. Uh, He would have long, drunken nights where he would uh, drink wine um, with his underlings and would complain that there were conspiracies against him everywhere. And he would demand that they drink with him, but he was a really heavy drinker, so they all drank like dyed water to Mm -hmm. try to act like they were drinking and hoping that he wouldn't notice and like kill them. (laughs) Uh, He also went into hiding at the start of the Nazi operation Barbarossa, uh, which is when the Nazis invaded the USSR, because he was certain that the first thing that would happen would someone would kill him. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why? Why do you think that? Because it's what I would do. (laughs) Uh, And also that he wouldn't let anyone into his room ever out of fear of assassination. This probably actually led to him dying because he did have a stroke and since no one came to check on him, they couldn't help him because they were all too afraid of being killed. He was such a pretty boy, though. Yeah. Uh, Joe also sent us some more pictures of Muffin the cat. Muffin's lovely! Yeah, so thank you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Ian wrote in again and is following your suggestion of talking about a favorite ice cream flavor, (laughs) Rocky Road. Ooh, Rocky Road's good. This is your typical uh, chocolate ice cream with chopped nuts and mini marshmallows. Mini marshmallows are what makes it so good. Yeah. It's a flavor that actually comes from candy bars, uh, specifically Australian candy bars of the 1850s, named for the roads to the gold fields. Uh, although uh, the traditional Australian variety uh, usually contains cherries and coconut in addition. That's a lot of stuff That'd in there. That'd be so good. Why don't we have that kind here? <laughs> I want cherries, coconut, nuts, and marshmallows. I am jealous. The first Rocky Road ice cream was uh, produced by Edie's in uh, 1929, uh, which is now known as Dryers and owned by Nestle. Of course, Rocky Road got its, its greatest... Uh, press in 1983 when Weird Al sang I Love Rocky Road, a parody of Joan Jett's classic I Love Rock and Roll. 
And while there is no evidence to support it, we must assume that uh, Rocky Road has been the most popular ice cream flavor ever since that fateful day. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Uh, Hallie wrote in, the friend of Joe. To answer the second bit of our question, what she suggested in that exchange. Yes. And that was the black tapes. Uh, That was what was suggested in their podcast swap. It's like miracles. I love miracles. (laughs) Let's talk about miracles at every show all the time. (laughs) Also get a couple answers to some prompts here for this episode. Uh, Favorite military dictator. Hallie did some research uh, to answer this prompt and is going with one that they are at least interested in uh, (laughs) and don't want to say is a favorite because that's weird. The second president of Egypt after the free officers movement after the revolution of 1952, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Hallie picked him uh, because he overthrew the first president who he picked to lead the country uh, after the free officers movement, and that he actually managed to do some good things along with bad things. Everybody's human. We also uh, have the prompt of moral panics, Uh, and the moral panic we are going with is backmasking. Popular conservative and Christian groups in the 70s and 80s believed that rock music was hiding satanic subliminal messages in their songs uh and also we get the prompt of fashion fad from history and that is bloomer suits uh (laughs) a small part of the victorian dress reform which was a big movement for women to wear more practical and comfortable comfortable clothing but unfortunately due to people wearing bloomer suits they were often the subject of heavy harassment and scrutiny and it didn't last very long but it was still an exciting time they were just wearing their undies out there. They had, like, undies under it. The double undies? Yeah. Okay. I would give that some scrutiny even so. And we also got some pictures of some favorite daycare dogs. Daisy, a golden retriever, and Bear, the husky. Aw, so, thank you so much. Yeah. Peter writes in with an answer for our military dictator prompt and is very strict about the military side of it. His answer is Roman von Ungern Sternberg, with many aliases, including the White Khan. Uh, in 1917, uh, his beloved homeland, Russia, has been seized by the Bolsheviks. In his uh, quest for revenge, uh, he, recre- he reinstated Outer Mongolia as an independent state, establishing the Bogd Khan as head of state and claiming a title for himself. Uh, he considered his cavalry legions, the Savage Division, to be the equivalent of a resurrected Mongolian horde, which he would use to destroy the communists once and for all. Of course, since he was just a weird aristocrat who liked horses a bit too much, uh, the Bolsheviks were able to uh, recruit uh, and undercut him because he didn't treat the common people all that well. Uh, So after a few years of uh, attempts, he was captured and, you know, killed, as a lot of people do to enemies who keep trying to invade them and, and overthrow their government from within and without. Uh, and that was the end of the White Khan. He was not saved by his uh, uh, oriental mysticism or the belief that he was an incarnated avatar of a Mongolian war god. Or maybe he was and he was just really, really bad at it. We may never know. It's hard to tell. Thanks, Peter. Rick writes in and has completely caught up. On every episode we have ever done. Oh, this is one of those long ones, isn't it? Yes. And Rick, Rick kept a list of notes during every episode. So that way he could answer every prompt, (laughs) which is amazing. And we have read them all, but we're going to, I'm going to pick some, some standouts. (laughs) But thank you so much, Rick, for doing it and being dedicated. It was very fun to read. Favorite ship. The HMCS Haida. Favorite ride, Millennium Force. Yeah. Local oddity, the Melonheads of Kirkland, Ohio. I want to Google that. (laughs) Uh, Local hauntings, Gore Orphanage, which is not even a real place. It's named after a road. That sounds gross. Favorite future, 80s cyberpunk. Favorite labor union, Ohio Nurses Association. Favorite puppet, 
all of the puppets on the stage show for The Wall by Pink Floyd. Uh, film production fact, the new lighting technique developed for the Valkyrie scene in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, favorite historical home, the home from a Christmas story, which is in Cleveland. <laughs> you could apparently like go there. Like Ooh. You can stay overnight or something. Favorite animal fact, the capybara is the largest rodent in the world and is very friendly with other animals in its environment and can be seen hanging out with lots of friends. Uh, favorite lawsuit, a class of lawsuits for tree law, mostly neighbors angrily cutting down other people's trees and then being forced or then being found liable for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Favorite thing in 2017, proposing to their fiance during the total eclipse. Aww, Aww. that's really awesome. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. Favorite live action Disney movie, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And favorite government surprise. <laughs> uh, I tried surprise! to think about this and it made me sad and tired. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Matthew writes in for the first time, at least the first time that actually sent. Sorry about your uh, uh, outlook problems. Thank you for appreciating uh, our last episode. And thank you for telling us about your favorite ice cream flavors. <laughs> uh, mint chocolate chip and coffee crisp, which may be a Canadian exclusive. I don't know. And also, thank you for the pictures of your lovely dogs, Ginger and Willis. We love the animal pictures. Yes. Uh, Sam writes in, answering favorite military dictator, uh, and is going with Oliver Cromwell, uh, and says, gotta love a guy who states that he's going to put an end to kings, and then inserts himself in a new government position that is completely identical to a king, but he just calls it something else. Sam offered a show suggestion, uh, which, because it's a suggestion, I'm not gonna Shh. say what it is. It's a secret. But, Sam... I knew that, and that's something I've thought about before, actually. So thank you for mentioning it and reminding it, reminding me of it. Thanks, Sam. Jordan writes in for the first time. Nice to see you, Jordan. Ooh. And uh, Jordan wants to talk about Thomas Sankara, who took control of Burkina Faso in a coup. Uh, towards the end of his rule, uh, he, he clamped down on the press and uh, his revolutionary courts and enforcers uh, got considerably more corrupt as time went on, uh, putting people on trial for being lazy workers. Uh, but in the beginning, things seemed nice. Uh, he, he emancipated the serf class and redistributed land, taking it from the, the feudal landlords that had forced them uh, to work upon it. He vaccinated two and a half million people in a week. He banned uh, some patriarchal practices, uh, even uh, including a requirement that at least five women had to be part of any president's ministry. He was assassinated in a coup that followed, killed by the, the middle class, the landlords, the, the ivory coasters, all those whose uh, power had been disrupted by his reforms and his, his later repression. A week before he was killed, he, he said famously and, and perhaps prophetically, while revolutionaries as individuals can be murdered, you cannot kill ideas. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, James writes in, answering uh, several prompts. Uh, favorite refugee, Superman. Uh, he gives everything for the sake of America and the Earth, despite not being from here. Uh, a favorite TV channel, Cartoon Network. Uh, but does have a lot of fond memories of PBS Kids, and also uh, thinks it's interesting to think in the modern era, who knows uh, if people will have a favorite TV channel in the future. Uh, They'll have a favorite streaming service. Yeah, my favorite TV channel today is Pregnant Elsa Spider-Man. I'm so behind the times. Uh, favorite spy, keeping with their favorite TV channel, codename Kids Next Door. That's like five spies in one. Yeah. Least favorite, but undoubtedly most interesting treaty, uh, the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, I think it's, uh, no, James thinks it's interesting <laughs> because it is a major contributor to World War II, which itself was a globe-changing event. You could say that, uh, I guess. And even at the time it was happening, some people didn't like it. Something bad my government did. Uh, James is from the U.S., and doesn't have a shortage of options to choose from, 
uh, but is going to go with something out of left field that they recently learned about. Uh, Cyprus is an island nation in the Mediterranean that is currently partitioned between the country of Cyprus and the almost universally unrecognized territory of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. The only country that recognizes Northern Cyprus is Turkey itself, and that's because they invaded it and took over the land of Northern, Northern Cyprus. Despite the fact that this went against the treaty establishing Cyprus as a country, and despite being the only real government that could intervene, the U.S. did nothing to stop Turkey and in fact encouraged the invasion uh, because Henry Kissinger did not want Cyprus to fall under Soviet influence and trusted fellow NATO member Turkey with preventing that. Uh, favorite military dictator, Umar Gaddafi. James says from what they've read, and from what they understand, he seems like an interesting guy, <laughs> but his methods were, you know, not the best, and had lots of enemies, but at the time it seemed like he maybe cared about his people. I don't, those are some understatements on the level of World War II changed things. <laughs> We're working with a very dry wit here. <laughs> so thank you, Japes. Thanks, Japes. Cleretic writes in and uses the prompt to talk about uh, the dictator of Turkmenistan uh, from 1992 until his death in 2006, a man so uh, uh, synonymous with the nation that he was called Turkmenbashi. The thing that sets him apart from, from others of his ilk is just how narcissistic and arbitrary his legislation could be. That is why he renamed bread after his mother. He replaced the word for bread with his mother's name. God. Other fun naming conventions. January was named for him. September was named for his autobiography. April was also renamed for his mother. There, there was a bread month. Goodness. His autobiography had a, a very prominent place in society, not just in September, but it was mandatory study for uh, any school or university, any government employee, anyone taking the driving exam had to study his autobiography. Also, uh, public lip syncing was banned, along with opera and beards. Goodness. Also, no dogs in the capital city. Fuck this guy. <laughs> That's the one? That's the one. <laughs> Taking away people's happiness. That's right. Lip syncing is vital to my happiness. Uh, but <laughs> thank you, Claritic. Jeff writes in uh, and shares some wonderful pictures of his dog, Phineas. Uh, and also talks about his favorite military dictator, Shredder. Uh, after all, he commands an army of the Foot Clan. And, you know, in the movies, he made a killer skate park and turned into Super Shredder, so take that, Mussolini. Yeah, I don't know what Super <laughs> Mussolini would look like. P pointier, I guess, if you're taking the yeah. Super Shredder route. Should Uncle Phil play Mussolini in a movie? I don't think so, no. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Jeff. Our last letter for this episode comes from Matt, a longtime listener who provides a uh, uh, show suggestion. So thank you very much for that, and Matt. Shh, we can't shh. say. Thank you all for your many, many letters. Uh, I was going to say we could save some for next time, but I think we're going to get a lot. Yeah. Because it's our New Year's special New coming Year's. up. It's actually going to come out on New Year's Day. What? Which pleases me greatly. Yes. Uh, but if you would like to send us a letter, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And that's where we'd like to get your show suggestions, like from Matt. Thank you. Or corrections, questions, stories, and answers to our regular prompts. Like I said, it is New Year's time, so we want to hear everyone's favorite thing that happened in 2018. Yeah. And again, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. While you're out there, a rating, a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or, or anywhere else would be so appreciated. You can also tell a friend. Tell those friends. The, the holidays, we are in full swing with them. There are holiday gatherings. There are forced family interactions. <laughs> there are all kinds of things going on, and it's a great time to either have nice conversations with people or force conversations with people. 
or just have something keeping you company in your earbuds when you're in the the airport uh, waiting for your gate to open. So you can tell the person you end up sitting next to on the flight about what you're (laughs) listening to. Word of mouth helps. It does. It does. Tell those baristas. One thing we would definitely recommend, though, uh, we are about one week from a short engagement of uh, Burning Bluebeard at the Neo Futurarium. Yeah. Now, around this time last year, you heard us talk about going to last year's production mm-hmm. and how it was incredible and wonderful and, and life-changing. The, like, best play we've ever seen. And how, you know, they only do it every couple of years. It's probably not coming soon. They proved us wrong. Apparently, they listened to our show and was like, you know what? Let's make liars out of them. <laughs> So if you are in or near Chicago uh, at any point between Christmas and New Year's, that is the week where they are doing this this short engagement. It is worth the trip. Please believe me. If you need New Year's plans, they are doing it on New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of their performances is, of course, on the actual day of the fire, the anniversary itself, with a matinee to be perfectly in line with the uh, remembrance of the Iroquois Theater fire. So you can be like us <laughs> and go do that. And you know what? It's not as creepy as you would anticipate. There's a lot of body bags in the beginning. There but... are. This is not a play for the faint of heart. If you can't handle stories of lots of people dying... What are you maybe doing listening go. to our show? Yeah, I wonder why you're here, but maybe don't go there. Anyhow, thank you so much for all of your support in this year. Now's the time when everybody's doing their their uh, looks back and their their top tens and, and any sort of way they have to categorize the year that was. 2018, the year that lasted about three years. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to thank you all for sharing uh, sharing it with us. Thank you. And it's been we, a good, good ride. And we're going to start off the new year together, and I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. History's better with, with your, your honey. honey.